Hey, thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a positive review for me in iTunes. You can also check out my all-too-rarely-updated website at tracknerds.com. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. Today we're talking about Prince of Egypt, a 1998 animated film from DreamWorks. This is a tricky one, and my goal is never to offend, but to take as objective a view as possible. This movie is an adaptation of the Book of Exodus, which is not a historical document. The final version of the story found in the Torah and Old Testament dates to around the 5th century BCE and was itself based on a long oral and written tradition. So if, as we talked about in the last couple episodes, if history begins with written records, why are ancient religious texts not considered historical documents? The simplest answer would be that they were never intended to be historical documents, but stories about man's relationship with God. But the better answer is probably that there is no simple answers, and like many things, they may exist on a spectrum. There is archaeological evidence for many stories found in the Bible. Likewise, many so-called historical documents are full of bias and lies. We should look at everything with a skeptical eye. Looking at Exodus specifically, we have to ask ourselves, So did Moses write about himself that time God literally spoke to him through a bush that was on fire? Or was it a story told about Moses by his people and their connection to their God? For centuries, the consensus of Jews and Christians was that Moses himself was the author of the first five books of the Torah slash Old Testament, including Exodus. But it is also likely that ancient Jews didn't really care who the author was because that wasn't the point at all. It was irrelevant to the story itself. Only after heavy Greek influence did they feel the need to find an author for these stories. And the idea that Moses was the author personally fell away in the 19th century. I also want to further bridge the gap between our cavemen from last week's quest for fire and the timeline of ancient Egypt. Let's think through it logically. As hunter and gatherers, we have to constantly move to where the food is. As nomads with some domesticated animals, we still have to move so our flocks and herds can eat. But once we can predictably and reliably cultivate crops, we can stay in one spot. How do we choose that spot? How about right near this giant body of water, this river, this lake, this sea? And maybe while one group takes care of tending to the fields and animals, another group can make weapons and put up some walls to defend our little area. A relatively safe population with a surplus of food and suddenly, we have a growing city. And hey, if our geographical area lends itself to create things that you can't make in your area, maybe we can work out a trade. And then concurrent to all of this are the power dynamics inherent in human interactions. Some groups or individuals are stronger or wiser or bolder, more cunning, more charismatic, etc. Whatever the reason, leaders emerge and others follow their lead or fight them to seize control. As a species, we've always excelled at taking things to the extreme, for good or bad. So we can start to see just how we went from bands of wandering primates to building the 455-foot-tall Great Pyramid. And as far as belief and worldview go, I want to quote Edith Hamilton in her book Mythology. She's specifically looking at the Greeks and Romans, but I think this works perfectly for all our ancient forebears. When the stories were being shaped, we are given to understand little distinction had as yet been made between the real and the unreal. The imagination was vividly alive and not checked by the reason, so that anyone in the woods might see through the trees a fleeting nymph, 
or bending over a clear pool to drink, behold in the depths a naiad's face. I just think it's worth mentioning as a way to look at how, again, ancient humans may have thought as opposed to modern humans with our uh, scientific knowledge and how we look at the world today. Now, specifically in Egypt, archaeological excavations have found human remains dating back more than 30,000 years ago and evidence of stone tools from 40,000 years ago or more. Gradually, the people of the region became more and more sedentary, shifting, as we've said, from hunting and gathering to agriculture. The fertile Nile River Valley provided the perfect environment for this. By about 7,000 years ago, the people of Egypt lived in small huts, made pottery, and were planting grains like wheat and barley. Perhaps 5,500 years ago, they began making large quantities of mud bricks. Copper was used in weapons and tools, and some cities may have uh, had as many as 5,000 people. Tribes were unifying into loose kingdoms or states, and there was warfare between Upper and Lower Egypt. Now, keep in mind, the, the Nile flows north up into the Mediterranean Sea, so Upper Egypt was in the south, and Lower Egypt was in the north. Around 3100 BCE, we have the unification of Upper and Lower Egypt under one ruler, the first pharaoh. There's a little confusion about the names here and whether or not different names and different records actually refer to the same person. The Great Pyramid of Giza was completed around 2560 BCE, and in 1303 BCE, Ramses II was born. Now, for the most part, for this movie, I want to take out the middleman and just stick to how the movie fits into our historical timeline without hashing out all the ways it deviates from the book of Exodus. And I'm going to assume there's nothing really to spoil here. If you're somehow not familiar with the story of Moses, continue at your own risk or check back with us after watching The Prince of Egypt, The Ten Commandments, or reading the book of Exodus. So, as the movie opens, we see the brutal glory of ancient Egypt with abused slaves building massive monuments. Then, to avoid the slaughter of infant slaves, a mother places her baby in a basket and sets it adrift in the river. The baby is washed up to the palace of the pharaoh, where the pharaoh's wife claims him as a son and names him Moses. We then jump years ahead to see Moses and his adoptive brother Ramses as young men racing around the city on their horse-drawn carriages. They throw a little historical joke in here, having the boys knock the nose off the sphinx, which it lacks to this day. A little later, Moses runs into his biological brother and sister, who know his true history. They tell Moses who he is, and he becomes suddenly hyper-aware of the poor treatment of the slaves, having just learned they are his people. Moses accidentally kills a guard who is abusing an elderly slave and runs away from Egypt altogether. He then spends what is meant to be years in self-imposed exile, where he is taken in by the high priest of Midian and marries his daughter. It's unclear historically whether Midian refers to a geographical location or to a group of people. In the film, it may be both and seems to fit with the idea of Midian being on the opposite side of the Red Sea from Egypt in modern Saudi Arabia. Moses later receives a message from God in a burning bush that he has been chosen to lead the Hebrew slaves out of Egypt and to the land of milk and honey, the promised land. He returns to Egypt to find that his brother Ramesses is now the pharaoh and demands that the slaves be released. When Ramesses denies this request, God inflicts plagues on the Egyptians, including frogs, locusts, boils, and the death of their livestock. Finally, the Hebrews are warned to paint their doors in lamb's blood to protect themselves from the final plague, the death of the firstborn son of each household. This is considered the origin of the Jewish celebration of Passover, though some scholars believe Passover celebrations predate the time of Moses. 
Plague kills Ramesses' son, and he finally relents and tells Moses to take the Hebrews away. But in a final wrath, Ramesses sends his army after them, and Moses parts the Red Sea so the Hebrews can pass before the water crashes back on the Egyptian army. At the end, we see Moses coming down from a mountain, holding two stone tablets. The movie trusts that you already know that these are the Ten Commandments, as it doesn't say anything about it and just fades to black. The end. And I don't want to neglect the religious and cultural significance of this story. I forget where I heard it, but the Jews may have been the first group of humans on the planet united not by common geography or ancestry, but by a common belief system. The promised land to which Moses led them resonates today as their claim to the land of Israel, though I'm sure we'll get much more into that down the line. So Moses is widely considered the most important prophet in Judaism and in turn is important to Christianity, Islam, and others. Ultimately, that is why I decided to include this story in the list. It's an ancient story that most of the world already knows and millions consider it foundational to their faith. For Jews, he is the prophet, much as Muhammad is to Muslims. Moses is he whom God made his covenant with the Jewish people. For Christians, Moses continues to be a symbol of God's law and is mentioned in the New Testament more often than anyone else from the Old Testament. Moses is a very significant prophet for the Muslims as well. He is actually the most mentioned person in the Quran and is said to have appeared to Muhammad during his spiritual awakening. Unfortunately, outside of these religious traditions, there's not enough evidence to consider Moses an historical figure. That's not to say he didn't exist. We just don't know. It, It could be similar to the debate over whether Homer was the original author of the Iliad and the Odyssey Or is he just the name given to the centuries of oral tradition culminating in those stories? No archaeological evidence has been found to corroborate the story of Exodus. And one key aspect of the story of Moses can be found in other contemporary stories. The concept of an abandoned baby uh, set adrift in the water is not unique. Sargon the Great of the Akkadian Empire, who ruled in the 24th century BCE, so about 4,300 years ago, has a similar origin story, as do mythical figures, Perseus, Oedipus, Dionysus, and others. So it'd be easy for people to just kind of borrowed that story and applied it to Moses. And let's jump from Moses to Egypt itself. So based on the character names and timeline, Ramesses would be Ramesses II, often known as Ramesses the Great, who ruled for most of the 13th century BCE, living to about 90 years of age. You can actually visit him if, if you like. His 3,300-year-old mummy is on display in Cairo. In his long reign, he waged several military campaigns and built cities and monuments and enriched the Egyptian kingdom. In a lot of ways, Ramesses was the pharaoh. Nine later pharaohs took his name, and he seems like the perfect choice to represent the unnamed pharaoh in the biblical story of Exodus. His lifespan did also overlap with when Moses is most commonly believed to have existed. However, Moses would have been quite a bit older than Ramesses, about 90 years older. The Prince of Egypt movie also correctly names Ramesses' father as Seti. This was Seti I, who ruled for only about 11 years before his death, during which time he did appoint Ramesses as Prince Regent, as portrayed in the movie. Interestingly enough, Ramesses did also outlive his firstborn son, though he was not a boy at the time of his death, but a young man with a wife and child of his own. And Ramesses lived so long he outlived many of his children and wives. It's, it's worth noting here that Ramesses had somewhere between 88 and 103 children. Pharaohs typically had one primary wife, the great royal wife, 
but would have other lesser wives and concubines. It wasn't necessary that the pharaoh's heir be born of the great royal wife, though Ramesses' eldest son was. And his ultimate heir, Merenepta, was the son of Ramesses' second great royal wife, who was promoted after the death of his first wife. So what about slavery in ancient Egypt? According to History Channel's website, slaves in Egypt were usually domestic servants or helped with farming. Where did these slaves come from? It's a little tricky to nail down as the distinction between slave and servant is hard to make. Some slaves were captured in war. Sometimes Egyptians would sell themselves into slavery as a way to pay off debts. Or the government might just draft necessary workers into forced labor. There's evidence to suggest that the pyramids were actually built by paid laborers and, more to the point, no evidence that they were built by slaves. Now, the Prince of Egypt does not show the Hebrew slaves working on the pyramids as they were completed more than a thousand years earlier. But if there were slaves working on other monuments, there's no reason to believe it was under such abusive conditions. There were plenty of building projects under the study of the first, and that continued with Ramses II. And in addition to the lack of physical evidence we already mentioned, there are also no Egyptian records, written records, to back up the story of Exodus. Though, to be fair, if the Egyptians considered themselves so elite, that one time some slaves left might not have been worth mentioning. The film also gives us a cursory look at Egyptian gods and hieroglyphics. The sun god Ra is mentioned most prominently, and it's probably the first Egyptian god many people would be able to name. At various times, different gods were considered the most important, and Ra was certainly on this short list. Others were the goddess Isis and the god Amun, who was later even combined with Ra into Amun-Ra. And now is as good a time as any to discuss Egyptian hieroglyphics. And I really just want to tell the story of how they were finally translated. The Western world was unable to read them until the early 1800s, after the discovery of the Rosetta Stone. If you're familiar with the language learning software, this is where it gets its name. The stone contains a decree from King Ptolemy V, written in three different languages. Egyptian hieroglyphics, an Egyptian demonic script, basically common Egyptian, and ancient Greek. Even after the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, it took scholars more than 20 years to finally crack the code. Long story short, it was complicated because a single symbol could represent a word, a phrase, or idea, or just be a sound in part of another word. Elsewhere in the world at this time, not a lot we have record of. Theseus was the legendary ruler of Athens, like as in the guy who fought the Minotaur. So we're very much in a time where legends and myths are intertwined with history. So I think it's appropriate in all of this to have Moses interacting with Ramesses the Great. As of this recording, you can stream The Prince of Egypt on Netflix. It's a solid 79% on Rotten Tomatoes and has many voices you'll recognize, Val Kilmer is Moses. The rest of the cast includes Ray Fiennes, Patrick Stewart, Sandra Bullock, and Jeff Goldblum, among others. If you're looking for other versions of the story of Exodus, you can check out both of Cecil B. DeMille's versions of the Ten Commandments, the first being a 1923 silent film, and the second, better-known version from 1956 starred Charlton Heston as Moses. In 2014, Ridley Scott directed Christian Bale as Moses in Exodus, Gods, and Kings. And we'll be visiting Egypt again in a month or so to check in on Cleopatra. Next week, however, we're staying in roughly the same time period and traveling across the Mediterranean Sea to the ancient Greeks. 
with 2004's Troy starring Brad Pitt as Achilles. Achilles. 